Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we spend time with Nicholas Charles, who is a partner with Notation Capital. Notation Capital is a pre-seed venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. Nick, thanks for joining us today. We're excited to have you on our podcast. To kick things off, can you tell us a little about Notation Capital and the strategy? Thank you both so much for having me. I'm very excited to do this. And as you know, I'm usually the interviewer for our Origins podcast. Yes, you have your own podcast, right? Where you interview LPs, usually investors in, in our funds, right? Yes, exactly. It's called Origins. Folks can find us on our site. So I'm much more comfortable as the interviewer by design. I like asking the questions. I'll see how I can do on the other side, but thank you very much for doing this with me. So my day job outside of the podcast is I'm one half of a small partnership of two at Notation Capital. We're based in Brooklyn. My partner, Alex, and I have been working together now actually for about a dozen years. We've been work married, which is, I guess, a third of my life now, which is kind of crazy. I'm 36. So that's kind of insane. At Notation or did you work together before? Yeah. So we worked together for a number of years at a company called Betaworks in New York. Sure. Which is kind of an odd company in that the primary business, at least in the early days, was building products from scratch internally. Alex was the chief architect there. So spent a lot of time helping build, writing code, assembling teams to build a number of early products that were created there. Things like Bitly and Chartbeat and TweetDeck and others. So mostly things around the early social web and data-oriented companies. So that was like an early version of a studio, right? Yeah. Betaworks was one of the first product studios. It was structured as a holding company. Betaworks would start out as more or less the sole owner of the internal products. And then over time for the products that began to work and get traction would ultimately spin those companies out into their own independent companies. Interesting. A model that is much more popular now, right? There's so many more groups that are doing it nowadays. Yes. It seems to be in vogue. I have thoughts on why that is, which we can go into. The other part of Betaworks, which is actually where I spent most of my time, although I did start and manage a couple products there as well, I ended up spending most of my time running our seed investing business, which at least at the time was all done out of the same company balance sheet. And so it looked and felt much more like angel investing, where I would invest basically 100 to 200K into seed stage companies across the US and Europe. It was an amazing experience. I, I fell in love with it. I loved working with founders in the early days and being a peer and at times coach and listener and seeing all these new products and new companies get built from nothing. That was all very inspiring and I, I fell in love with it. So after a great run there, Alex and I had always talked about working together on our own thing. And we spent probably a year or more in bars after work and meetings outside of work hours, just kind of thinking up what we might do together one day. 
some of those ideas were like different versions of Betaworks. Some of those ideas were more consulting oriented. We felt like we got really good at helping companies go from zero to one at Betaworks. We ran through that process many, many dozens of times through many failures and some successes. Which you have to be if you're a studio, right? You have to be very hands-on. Yeah, totally. I mean, we would build at Betaworks probably six to eight new products per year and one or two ended up seeing the external light of day. So we learned a lot about not just what works, but actually running efficient experiments in the early days. And so we felt like we could bring those experiences to founders as extensions of their team, like more like service oriented. Mm -hmm. And then the last idea, which we had never really considered until later on in our jam process was maybe the most natural way to do those things would be through a fund. So to be helpful partners to founders at the very beginning, informally offering our advice and counsel and services. I mean, Alex, I'm not an engineer. Alex spent most of his career as an engineer. He's not actually writing code, but he's helping with technical interviews and informally advising on technical architecture and infrastructure as companies scale. I'm spending a lot of time with companies going through early product prioritization and customer development experiments. And so we're informally bringing our experiences that we did at Betaworks and now through Notation to companies. And instead of charging them for that as consultants, we're asking them to invest and be part of the upside and the journey of the company. And so that felt like the most natural way to work with founders at those earliest stages. And so we left Betaworks in, I guess, mid 2014. We raised the first notation fund in early 2015. And what we do is remained remarkably consistent really over actually 12 years now. I, I, I think we only really know this one thing for better or for worse. And so we work with a small number of what we think of as really compelling product teams at the very beginning of a new startup, typically somewhere around company formation stage, which is typically somewhere between an idea and an early prototype. And we help them go to market. That's the simplest summary. So we spend a lot of time around early team building, a lot of time around early product building and product prioritization. We spend a lot of time around early customer development experiments. We spend a lot of time around fundraising. And so we try to be the first lead investor in the company and help them go from zero to one. So that sounds like a high conviction strategy, meaning you take a smaller number of bets per fund, right? Almost like a continuation of better works, except you give them capital too. Yeah, so I would say the two biggest differences between what we do now and what we did at Betaworks is we stay very far away from our own ideas. There's one exception to that, which I can maybe talk about at some point about a, one company that we co-founded in the last number of years, but I don't think VCs have great ideas. And we rely on founders to be the idea generation. I've learned that painfully now over the last yes, 20 years. Yes. So we're not building our own ideas and products. Again, there was one exception to that, which we can talk about, which wasn't really our own idea, but we formulated the, the idea with a couple of other founders that, that we had worked with previously. We're structured like a traditional venture fund. I could talk for days and days about the pros and cons of a product studio built inside of a holding company. And there are pros and there are a number of cons. We felt like the simplest, most transparent, most understandable structure is a VC fund. VC funds are very efficient. People give you money. You invest that money in companies. And as the companies grow up and exit, 
there's a very efficient way to then distribute that capital back to your investors. So there's all sorts of ways to innovate in startups. We felt like structure, like corporate structure was probably not the best way to do that. And so we wanted to be really simple in how we approach that. How large are the ticket sizes that you guys typically write? And when you are working with a company, obviously that early on, what are you looking for in terms of the team? I would imagine that's the most important part. So what qualities do you look for in founders? Sure. So I'll take those in two parts. So one, I'll just speak a little bit to the history and thesis behind Notation and how that informs our investments and our investment size and all that. And then just remind me if I forget, but the second part is how we think about what types of teams and products to work with in, in the early days. On the first one, we left Betaworks in 2014. We raised Notation early 2015. And I think it was a particularly interesting time in New York for a few different reasons. Now, obviously, fast forward to 2021, there's a f- new fund announcement seven times a day. In 2015, that was less common there was much less information about it. We had never raised a fund because Betaworks itself was not a fund. So we had no idea how to go about finding LPs, messaging to them what we were doing, tell the story. So huge learning curve in terms of raising our first fund. There was also just no information about it. So one of the reasons we started the Origins podcast in 2015 was because there was just no information about LPs. And we just wanted to learn ourselves. And then we figured, okay, this isn't really proprietary. Let's just try to share these learnings in real time with other folks that are either raising first-time funds or VCs, or even increasingly founders are kind of interested in, I think, how the capital stack works. So we did everything wrong, our first fund. I actually recently looked back at our LP target list for our first fund. I mean, it's insane. We went out and talked to everybody. We had no idea what we were doing. I one funny story is I remember very early on, I, I went to Yale as an undergrad and through a very random series of events, actually built a relationship, not terribly close, but built a relationship with David Swenson there who runs the endowment. And we actually got a pitch meeting with Yale in 2015. And given we were raising an $8 million fund, it was a proof of concept fund. We had a tiny little bit of a track record based on my time at Betaworks. I mean, it was like, the worst meeting from beginning to end you could ever imagine. It was truly embarrassing. I don't even know. I don't even know if we could ever walk in there again. It was so embarrassing. I was just about to ask, do you guys still keep in touch or? No, no. (laughs) So we just had no idea. In short, our core thesis was one, New York was going to be a particularly interesting place to build startups. So we wanted to focus on New York and it was relatively underrepresented from a capital perspective. That was a less popular view even in 2015. Now I think that's just super obvious. There's tons of funds being raised. There's huge companies being built here. We just raised our third fund less than a year ago and the New York question never came up. That was a big question for Notation One. The other core part of our thesis was that the traditional seed funds that you would think of here. So folks like Lairer Ventures or IA Ventures or First Round or others. We saw this in 2015. They went from like $10 million funds to $50 million funds to 100, now 200. Again, in hindsight, this seems obvious. In 2015, it was not. But our view was that these funds were going to continue to get bigger. And whatever they were calling seed was in fact, probably not the first 
round of funding anymore. And we were starting to see this at Betaworks. So I was playing around with pre-seed or what folks would call pre-seed now, where I'd meet a really amazing founder without much traction and just be like, hey, here's 400 grand, just go, just start building. Don't worry about raising the big round, just start building. And then you can go do that six months from now, eight months from now. So I was already starting to play around with that. And we felt like that could expand actually into the whole thesis for, for a fund. The only other fund I had heard of at the time was K9, Manu Kumar, who was describing himself as pre-seed. So I've mixed views on how I think about that term today, but Notation was the first pre-seed branded focused firm in New York in 2015, which was not particularly popular. LPs had no idea what we were talking about. Even half the founders had no idea what we were talking about. But we cobbled it together. We raised 8 million bucks. It was a proof of concept fund. All we wanted to prove was we could be in market. We could build a brand. We'd be great partners to founders. And we could find them super, super early before traditional funds or traditional seed funds. So we raised 8 million from just a hodgepodge of people, many whom are wonderful and are still with us today and deeply grateful to them for putting us in business, including Sapphire Partners, who I have... Still to this day, I joke with Beezer, who's on our Alpac, that I have no idea why she wrote that check <laughs> to us in the early days. We just had very little idea of what we were actually doing. But I do think perhaps she saw we we're just heat-seeking missiles for hopefully really amazing, talented founders in New York. And we would figure out and learn a lot of the venture mechanics and portfolio construction and other things that are very important to building a successful model over time which I think we did, which she was very helpful to us in doing. So that was our core thesis. And that core thesis really remains true today. We raised small funds. We've grown a bit. So we've gone from eight to 28. And our most recent fund is just over 40. But we are dedicated to being first money in and to being the best possible partners to founders at day, we call it day zero <laughs> of a new startup. So we want to meet with people years before they've started the company and work with them to go build something out of nothing. And so that's our driving force and mission. And it's all we've really ever done together. And maybe we'll have different lives in the future. I think that's one of your questions in the future. Yeah, I'm excited for that. But we love what we do and grateful to partner with founders. So what do we look for in early stage teams? This has been an amazing learning experience and process over the last 10 years for me personally as an investor. I think if you would ask me at the very beginning of Notation what we were looking for and today what we were looking for, it would be two very different answers. I'm more confident in our process today than I've ever been. I just truly believe in it and believe that if we can stick to it, we're going to do really well. And our process is in some ways trite and really simple, but I think if it's applied consistently and correctly, it's really powerful. So what do we look for in a team? First and foremost, we will look for founders that are amazing, inspiring leaders and communicators. People that can inspire early employees to join them when there's not much. People that can inspire VCs like ourselves to give them money when there's not much. People that can inspire customers to work with them when the product sucks. And some form of that is sales, but I, I really think of it as leadership and being able to tell an amazing story and being able to see into the future and explain that to others. So that's first what we look for. We also look for a team 
that this will sound silly or maybe trite, but that can simply prioritize. So there's a million different things you have to do in a startup. There's a million different ways you can go. I love founders that can say, okay, here's our big dream. And over the next year, here's the one, two, or three things we need to do. And so I really care about, you could also view that as just execution, but I think of it as how well does the founder say, these are my priorities over the next quarter, two quarters, year. We look for founding teams that are complementary in skill set. And we look for founding teams that clearly have some sort of unique insight or passion into a market. So it sounds like the model is really tailored around a specific kind of individual. So are you looking for specific markets? Do you know specific markets and you try to find founders in those markets? How do you approach the sector focus? This is something we've gone back and forth on over the years. Should we be spending lots of time researching and going super deep into markets and doing top-down research and hiring research analysts? And I think where we've come out is it's not us. It's not how we work. And there are some amazing firms that are very thesis-driven, research-driven, USV obviously here in New York and recent out West and many others. Our job is to be heat-seeking missiles for very talented founders and to listen to them about what they think are the biggest opportunities in the future. So I think of us as highly reactive. Now we have specific themes and we can talk about those themes, but even those themes are driven by founders. Where do the smartest founders want to build today? They want to build in blockchain and crypto, climate, machine learning, creator economy and creator tools. They want to build in developer infrastructure. Our job is to go find the smartest people that we know, particularly optimized for engineers and product people. And our job is to soak them for information and figure out, okay, where are all the smartest people building? That leads to themes and that leads to areas of interest that we end up investing in. So it's very founder and market driven. It is not top-down research thesis driven. Right. Do you want to give an example of one of your current companies? So I think Notation was probably one of the first firms in the market to start directly investing in crypto assets, traditional VC firms. And actually we had begun investing in crypto assets all the way back to Betaworks. So the best investment I've ever made by far is I bought Bitcoin on behalf of Betaworks in 2012 and 2013. What was very interesting about Betaworks is because we were structured like a holding company, we could do whatever we wanted with the capital on our balance sheet. So it was actually much easier to make crypto investments then compared to a traditional venture firm who I, I think at least at the time would have had to go through a number of hoops with their LPs and LPACs and, and get approval for that. So we just started doing that. The reason actually we started doing that is I met Coinbase at uh, YC Demo Day many, many years back. And because I'm a dummy, I didn't invest, but... I did get really interested in crypto because of that meeting. And they did inspire me on what crypto could be. That ultimately led to us investing in some crypto assets at Betaworks. So we had a little bit of a history in crypto when we went to Notation. There was a little bit of a lull in blockchain and crypto in 2015-ish, 2014-2015. But if you were on the ground with engineers around that time in New York, 
some of the smartest people we knew were hacking around Ethereum. Also, Consensus was in Brooklyn, which was kind of a startup studio like Betaworks, but built around Ethereum. And so I was spending some time with some of the folks there. It was just a few people at the time. And so it was clear that a lot of the smartest, most technical people we knew were building on this new platform. And that led us to two founders that worked upstairs from us at Betaworks on a different company back in the day who were starting a project, which is actually a decentralized live video streaming project called LivePeer. And it was really early, it was 2015, 2016. And they were building a decentralized network without any equity and issuing tokens in that network. And so at the time we said, well, look, our LPA isn't really set up to invest in crypto assets. We've done it before at Betaworks. We have deep conviction in these founders. These are two founders that we would invest in. They could be building anything and we'd want to write them a check. And so we made a leap and we did it. And I, th I think Notation was probably one of the first funds to invest directly in tokens. I think this was 20, maybe 2015 out of our fund. With those particular founders, what was it about them that made you feel that way? We had known them for a very long time, plain and simple, two of the smartest technical minds. There's a guy named Doug Picanix and a, another guy named Eric Tang, who had built a company called Hyperpublic and then Wildcard with their other co-founder, Jordan Cooper, who, who's now a GP at Pace Capital. And we had known them for years, known how deep they were technically, know how well they understood the Ethereum ecosystem. They had been working together for years and years. Similar to me and Alex, Doug and Eric, I think, <laughs> are forever co-founders and deeply passionate about it. Just deeply convinced that the next most important companies would actually look like these decentralized networks built on top of crypto networks. But you have to trust that these incredibly intelligent, incredibly passionate people could be right about the future. That's what we did. And I'm very glad that we did. It's been an amazing success story. And what's the name of the company that they built? It's called LivePeer. LivePeer. Okay. So it's a decentralized live video streaming network built on top of Ethereum. So there's lots of apps now built on their network that are live streaming video apps that are fully decentralized. So they're built, LivePeer is like the replacement for what you would consider like a CDN in centralized markets. So uh, really fascinating project. And what's the big advantage of that versus a more centralized YouTube? So they have a site, they have a, a page somewhere. I forget where it is on their site. I think the cost for transcoding and streaming on the live peer network is somewhere between 50 and a hundred times cheaper than their centralized counterparts like an Akamai. Got it. They're working on performance. It's pretty close right now to equivalent performance. And we think that it's going to dramatically improve over time as the Ethereum network scales and they scale. Think about it as similar to a Filecoin for storage. You, there's a great site also. I think it's maybe philstats.com or something like that, where you can literally look in real time the cost to store something on Filecoin versus AWS, and it's like 100 times cheaper. So they're leveraging computing power in essence, right? Not just bandwidth. A decentralized network. Right. With no centralized counterparty that's taking profit. Right. right. Literally owned, right. owned by the network. So you're distributing the computing power to all the Ethereum globally yeah. participants in essence. Yeah. yeah. So it, the simple pitch there is for the end user for a video app or a streaming service of some sort. So for an end user or video app, they obscure all of the blockchain. 
you don't even know that you're building on top of a blockchain. You're just yeah. hooking into their APIs and it's a hundred times cheaper and just as performant. So that's the kind of promise of the decentralized web and web three. And it's taken many years to actually get to a state where this stuff is beginning to scale. It is now truly beginning to scale. And I think in the next five to 10 years, it's going to be comparable to what you would think of as traditional internet. And what percent of your companies are in the crypto space? What I would say is that we probably spend over the last number of years, like 30% of our time in crypto, partly because we're obsessed, but on a cost basis, it's actually smaller. It's about 10% of our first fund, probably about 15 to 20% of our second fund. It'll probably be similar in our third fund. We invest in all of it. So we invest in equity-based blockchain companies. We invest directly in tokens. We're active miners. So we actually co-own a Bitcoin mining facility in Cascade Locks, Oregon, all hydro-powered and clean. So we do lots of stuff. Did the LPs have an opinion about when you guys bought, you're not just investing in equity, but you're investing in taking bets on crypto assets. Did they come to you and say, what are you doing? Or were they all like, yeah, it makes sense. So in the early days of notation, going back to 2015 and 2016, this is before the bull market of 2017 and 2018, it was a much harder sell. It was less comfortable, I think, for LPs. And this is also going back to a time where it's all scams and illegal activity or whatever else. So it was a much harder sell. I'd say we, we spent a ton of time educating our investors and our LPs and really put in the time and the effort to explain to them why we thought it was important, why we thought it was interesting, why actually, quite frankly, there was just no other way to invest in this market if you're not buying the assets directly. You can be pure equity-based, but I think you're missing a big part of the market if you do that. Over the course of a few months, we got them comfortable. And, and then what the last thing I would say is it was relatively small on a cost basis. We weren't going to them and saying, hey, we're going to put half the fund in crypto assets and we're notation as a crypto fund now. We were saying, hey, this very small investment bucket, we think this is important enough to, to take a leap of faith. And we have a history of doing it. And so they trusted us in that. And now, obviously, fast forward now, I think LPs are very hungry to get more crypto exposure than, than they currently have. Maybe we should do a separate episode, just you walking us through the thesis on, on the crypto market, which would be awesome. That's been an amazing 180, particularly in the past year. Even a year ago, I think LPs were pretty hesitant. These things are also tied to bear market and bull market cycles in crypto. So bear market, and, and which happened basically every two to three years, and they're wildly volatile. Right. So in bear markets, crypto assets can typically go down by 80 to 90%. In bull markets, at least historically, assets will 10x compared to their last top. So massive volatility. And not surprisingly, in bear markets, LPs want nothing to do with it. And in bull markets, they try to play catch up and trying to get more exposure. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean that I think it's an asset class that's really hard to stick it out through the bear markets and bull cycles, and also critical to stick it out through bear markets and bull cycles, but really hard to do. So at this point, we're going to switch over to our four standard question segment, and we're looking forward to hearing your answers. Our first one is our NBCA question. 
The National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there was one thing that you'd change about the VC industry or one policy that you'd advocate for, what would it be? So I was thinking about this one. This one might be unpopular, but I've always struggled with the carry loophole. I think from a philosophical and intellectual perspective, I've always struggled with capital being taxed less than labor. And my ask to the MVCA would be if there are changes to carry tax treatment, and it seems like they may be coming with the Biden administration, that we, that we don't fight that. You know that they advocate the exact opposite position, right? I know that. That's why this is my ask. <laughs> <laughs> this is my ask. Yeah, I, I, I think- That is an unpopular one. <laughs> I think I've never fully understood. We're working day in, day out. We get compensated in fees and carry as compensation for the work that we do. I, I don't really understand why it's not treated as income. Sweat equity. Yeah, I don't really get that. That falls flat for me. So well, look, look, we're not- if, we're if not. if there was one group that should get it, it's you guys. You're like at the earliest stages working alongside the entrepreneurs, right? Hey, look, if we all do well, if we make a ton of money and carry, I'm happy to pay that like everyone else in the workforce that's getting paid in income. And so if it does change, which I'd be supportive of, I, I, I think we should let that- just happen. Well, I think you might be in luck. Um, <laughs> Every VC is going to call me up now and be like, what the fuck are you doing? I mean, I, I you know, respect it. Number two, if you weren't a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? I've always been passionate about music and DJing. In high school, I had a great set up. I had all the vinyls. I was spinning on my Technics. I grew up in Brooklyn. I still live in Brooklyn. I had a gig on Tuesday nights at this bar on Smith Street. I don't know if anybody will know that in Carroll Gardens. And I just loved it. My friends would come through. It was not a popular night. <laughs> so that maybe speaks to my talent. But I went to college with my like whole setup, with my turntables, with my vinyls. And I went to college in 2003 and it was just deeply uncool at that time for whatever reason. You not toads? Yeah, it was not cool to show up with your whole setup and your vinyls. I don't know. I've been there and I feel like they would have been receiving that with open arms. Nah, nah. So after freshman year, I came home. I sold all my stuff on eBay. I think that's maybe one of my my greatest regrets because I loved it. And then of course, fast forward five years and now all the most popular highest or 15 years, all the highest paid, most popular artists are of course, DJs and producers. I gave up on that a few years too early, but yeah, if I wasn't a VSA, VC, I'd want to be Skrillex. You could always still buy the set and go to your spot on Smith street. And so one of my personal goals this year is actually to do just that. This is my year. I want to get back into some of my passions. I'm going to buy the whole setup. And actually my goal is to DJ a set in Prospect Park in Brooklyn by the end of the summer. So if anyone is in Brooklyn and wants to come through, send me an email. I'm now publicly saying it. Now I have to follow, follow through. There you go. Happened right here. I'm proud. <laughs> the NASA's and I will be there in our Coachella gear. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Sweet. I play deep house though. So it's not like, it's not the Coachella vibes, but I think you guys can get around that. Sounds good. All right. So number three is who is someone that you look up to and why? Skrillex. Oh, <laughs> so for notation, one of my greatest inspirations has been a film and production studio called A24, which some folks may not have heard of, but they're based in New York. They've made films like Moonlight and Good Time and Uncut Gems. And I hated that. <laughs> oh my God, I like really didn't understand that movie. Oh, I love that movie. It went over my head. Oh, I loved it. They did Ex Machina, shows like Euphoria and Rami. And they're just like this small shop, boutique, indie in New York doing just fucking great work. And I read this story about them many years ago where they were at the Oscars and the Moonlight was nominated for Best Picture and ended up winning, which is one of their films. And they were in some shitty table in the back. No one knew who they were. And, and then they freaking won the thing. And then their brand is beautiful. Their whole vibe is amazing. So I look up to them for inspiration for what I think Notation could be in Brooklyn, off the radar, and just doing good work. Awesome. Number four, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? So this is an incredibly hard question for me. So I think this is less advice, but more maybe a lesson or a value that was instilled in me as a kid by my parents, which was, I think they pushed me and I have two little siblings to try to be consistent with our self and our own values. And to bring that to everything that we did, whether it was at home or school or sports, or whatever else, to maintain a sense of self. And so that's just lived with me, I think, as I've grown up and I'm deeply grateful for that value. So when I'm at home or when I'm playing venture capitalist or when I'm hanging out with friends or spending time with family, you get the same Nick. It's the same human. There's no VC Nick and home Nick. And so I just try to bring my like same consistent self to everything that I do. And I hope that shines through. And I think I have to be willing to maybe have folks that are not like that, but I've tried to remain true to that. And I think that's a, a value that I have to thank my, my parents for. Thank you for that. And an appropriate way to end is to hear the siren going on behind you <laughs> yes. in Brooklyn. Yes, yes that's Brooklyn. <laughs> exactly. So, so we, we don't want to remove yes. that. That's just part of the authenticity. No, that's part of me. That's yeah. part of me. So Nick, we appreciate your time today and enjoyed learning about you and notation. So thank you for joining us. Thank you both so much for doing this. It was, it was so much fun. I was terribly nervous up front and then it just flew by. So thank you so much for, for having me. I really appreciate it. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc. Mm-hmm.